What's going on, guys? AJ here bringing you yet another episode of the E1B2 Collective Podcast and bringing you yet another episode, a special episode of Let's Talk Startups. We are bringing you Jonathan and Melissa Nightingale, guys. They're coming back for their second stint here on the E1B2 Collective Podcast. And as always, they completely ripped this episode apart in a good way. We talked about a lot of manager tips, right, guys? Because at the end of the day, whether you're an early stage startup, mid stage startup, late stage startup, at some point you are inevitably going to have managers that are within your organization. And Jonathan and Melissa Nightingale completely gave us every single thought process, every single framework, every single best practice that you should think about when it comes to being a great manager within a startup, being a great manager within a growing organization, being a great manager within a fast growing organization. And so I am very grateful for uh, Jonathan and Melissa Nightingale for number one, just being open to joining the podcast yet yet again for a second time and number two I am so thankful for them kind of breaking down a lot of uh, categories and structures and best practices and frameworks that frankly was not even on the docket for today's episode but we got a little bit out of the box we got a little bit um just a little bit all over the place, but in a very, very good productive uh, way. And so if you're a manager within a startup, I can guarantee you will appreciate every single minute of this episode. So thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Melissa. And get excited, guys, because this is going to be a very, very, very good episode of Let's Talk Startups. Thanks a lot. All right, perfect. Um, Thank you guys so much for joining this podcast again. Um, For the listeners, these uh these two amazing folks have been on the podcast before the uh you guys are actually um i, I want to say i don't want to exaggerate here but i, I genuinely want to say your top three most downloaded episodes out of like 400 so Whoa, that's, that's um, amazing that's so cool yeah i don't know what that means but that's interesting um it probably means you guys not only are great but um i know from the books and your consulting now just your career overall you probably have a decent base and people kind of look out for you guys. So that's always interesting. Um, but for those that did not listen to that episode, I want to say, what would you guys say? 14, 15 months ago? Yeah. Early pandemic, it was early right? pandemic, right? Cause it was, it was just at the first version of lockdowns and it was the most energetic conversation we had had, I think basically in weeks with another human. Appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> So um, for those that didn't listen to that episode, because, uh, you know, I push out four or five episodes a week. So it's it's down there. It's down there in the archive there. Give us a a quick 90 second of who you are, um, you know, what you're working on right now and just a full kind of, again, a quick 90 second background of of what you guys are about. And um, and then we'll get going. Uh, I'm Melissa Nightingale. I'm Jonathan Nightingale. And we build better bosses at Raw Signal Group. So we're the co-founders of Raw Signal Group. And we founded in 2017 with this idea that most leaders working in fast-paced organizations today are ill or under-equipped for the work that they're doing. Um, And that was sort of our own experience coming up in startup was that we got thrown into the deep end and told you'll figure it out. And we felt like sort of coming into 2017, we were like, we can do better than this. Yeah, we uh, we both used to work as, as individual contributors and then as managers and then as directors and then as executives in a variety of, of startups and tech organizations. And one of the things we kept seeing over and over again is new people getting promoted, us included, uh, and given nothing, given no instruction manual. Like, congratulations, you know, here's a new business card. Maybe here's, here's a new salary package. Go figure it out. And 
and not because anybody was trying to like, you know, give us tough love or, or sink or swim, but because the people promoting us didn't know any better. There was nobody in the whole stack who had gotten educated on this stuff in a way that generalized. And the thing that we got really excited about was the idea that like this stuff is all entirely learnable, right? That management and leadership skills are, are skills, they're discrete sort of activities and they're things that most folks given an opportunity to learn can come up on very quickly. And and so we've got sort of a whole bunch of leaders out there in the world walking around not not with like having these skills. Um, and that feels like such a shame. And so for us, the part that we get really excited about is that at this point, we've worked with thousands of leaders across four continents. And, and it's really neat to sort of watch folks start in one place and really end up somewhere else. So that's, uh, that's who they are. <laughs> they are amazing. Um, so let me ask you guys this. Uh, let's, let's jump right off the backs of, I think, where we potentially left off. I tried to listen to the episode, um, but I have a, a bunch of new ideas, a lot of new, uh, new thoughts. And I definitely want to kind of unpack and understand what's top of mind for you guys. But I think my first question is the following. Um, a lot of the work that you guys do and a lot of the work that I do kind of crosses over a bit. When I first came into this industry in this space, I realized that a lot of the things that we talk about and that we teach at a, at a macro high level tends to be somewhat common sense, good human being doing the right thing is the right thing type things. Like, is that, is that a, is that, is that a good estimation of, 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 of what you feel we all do? And I'm asking you guys that because I feel like there are fo folks that look at you, that look at me, that look at other folks and, and kind of break down what we do is a little bit more difficult or a little bit more intricate or a little bit more um, confusing than I think it needs to be. What are your thoughts on that? And this is backed by another point that I'll make in a moment. Yeah, it, it, I think there's there's two things going at once there, right? So the first thing, I think you're totally right. I think a lot of good management, a lot of building teams that thrive, a lot of building high performance, like world-class organizations, comes down to treating people with respect and dignity. That's certainly true. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. But, you know, when you peel that back a little bit, it's sort of like saying, you know, driving a car, you just gotta, you gotta be safe. Don't run into people, right? Drive, drive sensibly. And, and that's true, but there's a ton of technical skill that goes into it. There's a ton of learning what, where, where a car can misbehave, right? Where, where a team can go sideways, where an organization can go sideways and how to correct for that. That's just about building skill, right? It's, it's just about getting a better handle on how to match that intention. And Melissa said it, we worked with thousands of bosses. We've never worked with a boss who said, I really get off on making my people suffer, right? They, they want to run great organizations too, but they, they have trouble connecting those dots between like, here's what my values are as a, as a person and then how do I show up in a workplace as a manager or as a leader and make sure that, that I'm living those and that I'm building an organization that lives those? I think common sense is also doing a lot of work there. Like the, the idea of it being common sense means that like we as humans in the workplace have a common understanding of how we want to be treated, how we want to be spoken to, how we want to receive feedback, how we want to receive assignments, like what kind of autonomy we need in the work that we do. And I will say like, just humanity is not that simple, right? Not everybody has the same idea of what they want there. And so a lot of times we'll talk to leaders who start from that sort of assumption of common sense. And when you dig into it, what they mean is like me, like me with my sort of understanding of, of what common is. And I think from mm. there, you're, you really end up with leaders who, who often build a team that looks exactly like them. Mm. 
That's interesting. You just you just took me to a whole nother direction there. So that's interesting because it, from that angle, then it would then it would be how we're kind of creeping into the a lot of the DE and I conversations that are happening now. So maybe the keep going on that because I think that's interesting, right? Because if if you do kind of go down the direction of what's common sense, aka what's most natural to me, then like you said, then you have a team and a structure that shows up operationally only from your point of view which I think a lot of companies get in trouble with, right? Let me give you a tiny example. So we work Please. with bosses a lot. And one of the things we talk about, obviously, is hiring. And there's this question, you can you can lob it into a room of managers, and it's like a grenade when it goes off, where you say, um, how important is a thank you note? Hmm. How important, you know, you interview someone for a job, right? They come in, you have a great conversation. How important is it to you that they send a thank you note? And you will have bosses who are like, it's common sense. Obviously, you got to send a thank you note. Like, were you raised by wolves? Like, everybody sends a thank you note. And then you have other bosses going, it's not the 1870s. I don't, I don't need personalized stationery. I don't need a thank you note at all. Like, it's weird that you would ask that, right? And that projection of what's common sense is, you know, Melissa said it. Common sense is doing a lot of work there. And in that context, the work it's doing is, did I have a parent or an auntie or an uncle or whatever? Did I have somebody in my life growing up? who taught me like North American business practice, right? And if, I, if so, then like I know it's common sense for me that you would send a thank you note and I'm only gonna hire people who send thank you notes because I feel like they've got sense, like they're professional, right? And they've got other people who are totally capable of doing the job, who are like engaged and creative and stuff, but just did not come from that. And, and their common sense, it's not that they like hate thank you notes, it's just that they never would have thought of it. That's a good point. That's a good point. You guys got me thinking here. I'm like looking off into the nothing, like like gazing, thinking here for a minute, because that's that's interesting. Let, let me ask this, this is for the both of you guys. Let me ask this as well. Um, do you guys ever creep into like the Tony Robbins, Brian Tracy-esque type feelings? And this is what I mean. Follow with me here, probably like, what the hell is this kid talking about? Uh, what I mean by that is I, I genuinely believe great leaders and great managers at the end of the day, they're humans, right? They're not, they're not computers, they're not tech, they're not code. Um, and so do you guys ever creep into kind of unpacking kind of, again, how they were raised, you know, what, what values and what perspectives they grew up with and, and how that may show up now as, as leaders at 29 or now leaders at 47 or now leaders at 52. Cause I, I you know, that's the work that I found myself creeping into when I was in house and now kind of what I've been doing over the last 14, 15 months here. And I found myself getting in dangerous spots and territories because it starts to get, I don't want to say too emotional because I actually am the person that raises my hand first to say, I'm willing to go all the way there with you. Like we can, we can hang out and grab a glass of wine and we can go all the way there if you want and unpack it. But what I'm really, I guess, looking at and what I've come into difficulty with is, there is a lot of underlining pain and a lot of underlining issues or a lot of underlining negative points of views that were ingrained into their subconscious over the years that can manifest in, in their in their natural managerial skill sets until amazing folks like you come in and and do a superhero move and clean things up. So what, what are your thoughts on all that? For for the level of work and depth where you're talking about either trauma or you're talking about sort of early life sort of pathways, 
to me, like that's work that you want to be doing in connection and in conjunction with somebody who is well trained in that work, right? For us, mm -hmm. I think we're, we're really cautious to stay in our lane. And the thing that we talk about all the time is like our lane is work, right? Our lane is work and making work better. And that's a pretty wide lane. But anytime we're, we're talking about work and we're dipping into people's past or people's trauma or people's childhoods, then we've dipped into to what, what traditionally is, is a therapy lens. And that's not really where we play. Yeah, this is the thing, right? I think your, your Tony Robbins reference is exactly right. I know you had that documentary that came out a couple of years ago and you know, they, whatever you want to say, whether you like him or you don't like him, it's hard to argue that he's had an impact on a lot of people, that there's a lot of people out there who are going to point to going to some Tony thing and feeling changed by it. And I, I don't doubt it. Um, but you watch, you watch him bring people up in front of a room of 2,500 people and, and have them dig into to really traumatic stuff. Like there's really hard stuff that goes in there. And, and to me, that just feels really irresponsible. Like, can you, can you put up an incredible documentary with that? For sure. Can you have some people go through that experience and come out the other side changed, either because they, they learned something about themselves, which is powerful, or because they, they connected with some empathy for some person who was on stage suffering there? Like, maybe. But I think you're going to end up activating a lot of stuff that you, you really want a mental health professional for. Now, what I will say to you, though, is that you're totally right that any any leader who's taking it seriously anybody who's treating this like their life's work and, and like oh crap like i'm getting paid to to show up every day in an organization and have a, an amount of power over how other people experience work whether they get promoted whether they get paid enough to feed their family like i'm going to show up with that if you want to take that seriously and like honor it then definitely you're going to have to do some self-work that's for sure true right you're going to have to look inside you're going to have to explore some of that stuff i just think that that the answer for that is that now you need a team, right? You need you need people working with you on management skills. That's great. You need people working with you on HR stuff. That's great. You also need a therapist. You need a place where you can go and do that work that's that's safe and trained. And specifically, like we talk to bosses all the time. One of the things that, that where bosses get themselves into complex situations is that they want to be helpful for their people. And AJ, you talked about it, this idea of like common sense. And so one thing is if someone brings you a problem and you're their boss, you're supposed to be helping them with that problem. There are a set of problems where you are not the appropriate person to help them with those problems. And and having a power dynamic and a workplace dynamic is actually the worst case scenario for that person getting the support that they need, which may be entirely separate and distinct from your workforce. Yeah, we've been seeing a lot of that during pandemic, right? Like every boss has a team full of people who are burnt out. And, and the boss is burnt out, right? And so you go into those one-on-ones and you're like, okay, I got to I gotta put on my game face. I got to be helpful for this person because I'm their boss and I'm trying to take that seriously. But I'm fried. I'm crying between meetings. And then this person comes on and they're not going to turn on their camera because they're just having a rough day. And like, what do I do? Do I keep it really superficial or do I touch it? Because if I, if I start to ask questions, do I know what to do with what comes back on me? And, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to work to just compartmentalize it. Like at some point that stuff's going to show up at work. So they, the thing that we tell bosses is like, it's, you got to go get educated on it. Not, not so you can be their mental health provider, so that you can know what resources are available and, and connect your people with that when they need it. And specifically working in partnership with your internal HR teams, right? If you've got internal HR counterparts going to them and saying like, I just, I need more information on this because I'm going to get asked about it and I don't want to be caught flat-footed. Is that deep enough for you? <laughs> no, I, I'm, I think I'm crying here already. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, that is, that is perfect. Um, 
I do have one more question to go up this this road in a little bit of a different direction that will take us more kind of operational and more day to day because I think you're right, right? Like you have to play a nice, you have to play a nice, um, you have to be thoughtful with how you walk that tightrope, if you will, and, and and watch how you cross those boundaries, if you will. And so, let me ask you this: when 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 a CEO, a founder, because I think a lot of why I was attracted to you guys with your background, with your focuses right now, you're working with high growth organizations. Um, I don't want, I've, I've been I've been cautious to label these companies startups all the time, because when I say that, some people think a startup, two people, seven people, 12 people, 50. I put startups in the range of a lot of different, like zero to 200 employees. But I think for you guys, you're really into the fast, fast growth organization. Yeah, and, so and we're, we're with you on that. Like, I think people okay. are really hung up on startup versus scale up versus like blitz scaling hyper. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter. We, we know you got you a bunch mean. of people doing hard work. Yeah, <laughs> you guys know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, okay, so my question is this then, um, and I'm glad that you guys have a have a have a sense of what I'm what I'm alluding to then. When you think about finding and hiring these managers, right? To what point, connected to what we were just talking about, to what point do you go and and look for some of that work on themselves that they've already done as a prerequisite to bringing them into the org, right? So let's say you're hiring a manager externally, not even raising a manager from within, or we can even throw that into the example as well. How much work does that person need to be doing on themselves, right? How much Again, whether you want to creep all the way into the Tony Robbins, Brian Tracy-esque of the world, or whether you just want to sit right there in the middle of just, you know, emotional intelligence, really, you know, self-awareness, you know, great communication skills, um, strategic empathy, you know, situational leadership. How much of that pre-work do you want to see as a founder of a company, someone do in those categories on their own, not, a, not reaching out to Jonathan Melissa, not reaching out to anyone else? How much... Work do you want to see them do on their own before you even put them in that position? And then maybe they'll call you guys to kind of layer some some intelligence and some best practices on top. But and, and I'm asking this because this is kind of the kick that I've been on recently, and I haven't been able to really figure out how to articulate it and really how to and how to put accountability structures around it. Because I personally believe until you externally or raising someone internally have the right to call yourself a manager you have to realize that you're working with human beings and you're working with emotions. You're working with different perspectives. You're working with different communication preferences. You're working with a lot of things that I just personally believe if you want to call yourself a manager or a leader, there needs to be a little bit of accountability on your part to teach and educate yourself around these things. And I want to see that from you as a manager before I think I put you in that position. What are your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm probably off-putting here, but I want to hear your thoughts on that. No, I think the, the thing that comes to mind for me is that the, the piece that you said at the front, which is that like we're often working with really fast growth organizations, right? We're often working with teams that are doubling in size every year, sometimes tripling yeah. in size. And in that context, like, yes, in an ideal scenario, every person that you put in a managerial position would be beyond ready for it. They would feel yeah. fully equipped for it the day that they start. But the reality for many of the folks in the organizations that we're working with is that like they were there early and they got pulled up quickly and they're now running a team that's bigger than any team uh, like that's bigger than any company that they've ever worked in let alone team that they've led 
and for us, I think the, the piece that we get excited about is that like it is all learnable. And so if, if you can't make it a prerequisite for every leader to do deep self-work before they step into a leadership role, then you better get them some support the minute that they're in that role, right? Once you've got folks who are in that role, I think the question is less on the individual and the onus really shifts in terms of the company, right? Like what is yep. the organization doing to support folks who are in a leadership role for the first time or who are in a leadership role for the 12th time but haven't gotten any training along the way? Well, this is it, right? So when you talk to, like, let's take a classic like tech startup, right? You'll totally have discussions internally where they're like, okay, how many of the engineers that we're hiring need to come in ready to hit the ground? They already know our stack, right? They, they, can, they can be doing hard work the day they get in. And who are the ones that we need to expect to train up? right? And you can have that conversation with growth marketers and you can have that conversation with HRBPs. You can like, there's a bunch of different divisions where you can say like, some of the people we hire, we expect to already know this stuff. And some of the people we're going to have to train managers, anybody in a people leading context, there's no such thing as hiring the person and they already know how to manage because they don't know how to manage here, right? That like anybody that's coming in the door, we should expect if they've got people management, we should expect to have to educate them at a minimum we're going to have to teach them like what we value, how we do, how do promotions work? How do we think about compensation? Like there's going to be a bunch of sort of inputs. Like what's our goal system? Yeah. Even, even a great manager needs to sort of get calibrated about like, how do we, how do we function here? And then on top of it, I just think it's a better assumption to start from this place of like anybody we're bringing into a people management role is, is probably undertrained, is probably under-equipped on that because like we have not met many people. We work with people who like, you know, in our, in our intake questionnaire, we'll say, oh, I did, I've done lots of management training. I've done, I've done a bunch of stuff before coming to this raw signal group program. And, and we get to the end of it and unprompted, they, they sort of come up and they're like, wow, you know, I'd done a bunch of training, but I never really connected the dots. And I'm realizing that, that I was doing a lot of things wrong. And I'm like, that's, I would hate for an employer to see all the training that they'd done previously and just assume that they're going to get it all right. Well, and I think that that's not only raw signal specific, like it's not only raw signal group where a lot of the, the leaders that we work with haven't had sort of training before. We'll talk to, to sort of industry average and the industry average is that you get promoted in your 20s for the first time into a managerial role. And the first time that you ever get anything that represents like official or sort of structured training is in your 30s, like that there's a 12 year gap between that first promotion and the first time anybody sits you down and tries to explain any of this. That decade is painful for the people working for you. And I, I want to come back, AJ, to your thing about self-work. Like, I do think that's really important. I index off it a lot. And there's good research to back up the fact that, like, self-awareness is a better predictor of managerial success than, than basically any other attribute. It's really hard to measure in an interview. It's really hard in an interview context to read somebody else's mind and know if they're snowing you or not. And so what I tend to look for instead is engaging plausible detailed conversations about times they would do their old job differently. I want to see evidence that like when, when mm. they reflect on their own resume, which is supposed to be their proof that they're like a great hire, right? Oh, wow. You were, you were the VP engineering over there. That's amazing. That you must've learned so much. That must be such an, you must be such a qualified leader. A thing that I've found is a really good predictor of people who will, who will not screw up is when they say, yeah, but like, I would do that really differently now, right? Like there was this thing and this thing and this, and be able to go into details and say, here's a place where I was so sure that I was right, but I was so sure that I was right because of a set of technical considerations that actually weren't what the business needed. And like, here's what I now realize people have been trying to tell me for a long time. Like that kind of stuff for me is gold because it, 
it, it shows that a leader is self-reflective and capable of, of admitting failure without, without me needing to ask questions about like, <laughs> how much work have you done in therapy? And, you know, how do you, how do you feel about yourself and, and how do you bring your past traumas into your current situation? Which we should note are, are falling well outside of what should happen in an interview. This is really interesting. You guys realize I haven't even looked at these uh, bullet points you guys sent me. I do apologize. Okay. Um, we like talking. Yeah, we're getting into some other things. But I think so far, this is all valuable. So to the listeners, please, uh, I hope you're listening. Because I think I think these things are like, this is real talk stuff, right? This is this is the reality of how these things actually show up. And, and these are things that I know for a fact the listeners will appreciate. So let me, let me throw this at you here. Um, and then maybe I'll look over these bullet points and try to go off some things here. I do apologize again. No, um, we're, we're okay to riff. It's fine. Perfect. 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 Cause, cause you guys know my style. I really like it. I, re I really like to make sure my guests uh, talk about things that generally are top of mind for them, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on, I'm on another wave here for a minute. Um, let me ask you this then. Now I know the context, right? I know the context of, venture capital, angel investors, um, any other pressures that are bearing down on these high growth startups and organizations that we all know, appreciate and love. But th something that I've been talking a lot about over the last year and something I talked a lot about when I was the internal head of people at uh, a couple startups here in the DMV, I used to say to the CEO all the time, who's rushing us? Like, like is there... Is there some like mass murderer that I don't know about behind the scenes that's forcing us to move at this speed? And I understand the marketplace is going in a different direction. You want to try to capitalize as much of the market as possible. I get it. I'm the capitalist capitalist. I'm an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. I want to make as much money as possible. And I get it. But something that I would always push very heavily against with my CEO is I would say, why can't we slow down for a minute? And it's connected to the managerial kind of kind of conversations we're having when it when it when it pertains to how much self-awareness or how much self-work do they need to do? Because here's my question to you guys. You guys made a statement that I agree with. A lot of high growth organizations are moving quickly. So they don't always have the luxury to slow down, put out these really deep prerequisite kind of conversations and structures and really go through the baking out of making sure the managers that they're bringing in externally or the managers that they're grooming up internally are really ready before they get into that spot. But let me throw this at you guys. Erase everything you know about this space and let's try to rethink about this. What if they could slow down? Because in theory, I guess literally they can. What if they were to slow down? What would that look like? Because that was the thing that I was pushing very heavily against with my CEO. And, and, and you guys probably already know the punchline. We would have very intense debates because I would scratch my head wondering, like I would say to Kevin, outside of your own egotistical desire, which I appreciate, brother, I'm your biggest fan. I want this company to be massive. But I'm seeing some gaping holes right now within our managers. I'm seeing some gaping holes right now within everything we're doing with our employee experience and our people operations that are inevitably going to impact us in a negative way down the road. And please let us slow down for a minute and fix these things. But you all know that that's not reality. But let's let's paint a new reality. What does that look like if we were to try to tell all these high growth organizations to slow the hell down for a moment and put some of these things in place? Talk to me about that, guys. If you agree. If you don't agree, tell me to shut the hell up. We can keep moving. 
think for a lot of organizations, when you're starting out, you're small, right? Like that's the nature of, of the story of startup, whether it's venture backed or not venture backed. A lot of the organizations, when they get rolling, they have small teams and you don't need a lot of process for a small team, right? For the most part, prior to pandemic, we were all working in the same room together, right? If there was a question I had, I'd just be like, AJ, I have a question. Can you answer my question? And we didn't need a meeting for it. We just, I just asked you the question and then I got my answer immediately. And so for a lot of organizations, I think part of what helps them go really fast in the early days is the stuff that tends to slow them way down as the organization gets bigger. Yeah, it's funny, right? It's it's like we, we make this argument about organizations. Oh, we're going really fast. We don't have time to slow down and do that. It's like you, would, you wouldn't make that arg argument in other contexts. It's like, I don't know why I'm using car metaphors today, but it's like if somebody said, we're going really fast, we can't afford a steering wheel. And you'd be like, uh, but but you're just going to run into a wall. You're going to go very fast, but you're just going to run into a wall. And they're like, yeah, 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 that's like, we'll deal with that at some point. But like right now, we just got to focus on driving. We don't have time for a steering wheel or brakes. And I'm like, yeah, but, but you can't. It doesn't make sense. Like you don't have an organization that you can you can maneuver at that point, right? We talk to our bosses about this thing that like, we're always a little bit reluctant to say, or at least I'll speak for myself, I'm always a little bit reluctant to say, there's this, there's this old rule, right? Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Slow is smooth because like, when we actually think through what we're trying to get done, we're less likely to trip over our shoelaces, we're less likely to have one department working in direct opposition to another department, or have three different people on the team have three different ideas of the feature set and the launch date. Or spend time trying to hire people and then have to turn them over within the first three weeks of their employment. And then because of that smoothness, we go fast, right? We're just like, we're together, we're tight. And so like everything that we do, yeah, I mean, it may, maybe it looks from the outside like we took two weeks longer to ship the thing, but we didn't have half our team quit the next day. And so like we get to ship the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. And, and I'm always a little bit reluctant to say it because I know when I'm talking to a room of people who are raised on like blitz scaling, um, that that feels like sacrilege is exactly what you're saying, right? It feels like, how could you, how could you imagine that? What you must not have what it takes to be startup if you're talking about slow is smooth, smooth is fast. But it's also not visible. I think it, it is exactly what Jonathan said that like if you if you run that fast and half your team quits, well then you're going slower because you lost the institutional knowledge of those folks that you turned over because you burnt them out sort of catastrophically. But I think for a lot of folks staring at it, they're like, yes, but like that doesn't like that somehow doesn't matter. That's somehow not hitting my my sort of business math in a way, in the same way as us sort of running, you know, 70 hour work weeks and you're like, okay, well you can run the 70 hour work weeks, but if you turn everybody over, you're not going faster, you're actually going slower and it's really expensive for the organization and it makes it really hard to attract the top talent you say you need in order to do amazing things. And so I think the, it, it, AJ, you're exactly right. Like the dirtiest word in startup is slow down. Like you, you just, you cannot say that phrase in a startup context, in, at least in the current context. Yeah, but if you, if you've got an organization run by pros, right? Like one of the reasons we run so fast is because we want to keep everybody's sense of urgency high, right? Because urgency is a thing that we do in order to get the best work out of people to make sure nobody's slacking off and like, you know, checking social media in the middle of the day. Like they, the bosses who use velocity use it in part as a, as a management hammer to make sure that everybody's doing their stuff. But like 
it's a pretty ineffective one. And the VCs who use Velocity are using it because that's what the money is for. Like if you are betting on a player within a market, you're betting on them beating the rest of the market. And it may be that the way that they beat the rest of the market is they turn over their team and they use the money to buy a new team. But the truth is that many of those VCs are, are shit operators. They can't, they've never run a business or if they have run a business, it was 30 years ago and like none of their people would ever work for them again. And, and even if they're one of the exceptions to that rule, VC incentives are all around like, you need to get very big very quickly so that you can go raise a new round at a higher valuation and I can go tell all my LPs what a great investor I am because I got you 18 months ago when it was, you know, $100 million cheaper to do it. And, and the funny thing is when you say like reimagine, what would it look like, right? That happens all the time. There are all these companies you never hear about. They're just run by pros who are like, I don't need to say, oh, we made 1 million last year, so our goal for this year is 100 million because that's like my version of urgency, right? I can say like, I can be smart and say, I can, I can write 100 million on the goals list, but nobody's gonna hit it. A bunch of people are gonna be demoralized and the people who actually try to hit it are gonna burn themselves out and quit, maybe in a blaze of glory. So what I'm gonna do instead is be smart and say like, you know, what's, what's cool is to take that million of profit and turn it into 2 million of profit. And then next year, turn it into 4 million of profit and like do it in a really sustainable way where everybody on my team gets paid really well, where like we can have our pick of who we want to hire because like we've got a great rep locally or globally in terms of the product we do and where we can be really proud of our work. It's just those people are less likely to take follow on VC rounds because they don't they don't match the VC investment model of it. it like it's got to go gigantic. And if it can't go gigantic, it's better for it to explode quickly so that we get it off our books. Yeah. But AJ, you and I have talked at length, not, not on this podcast, just privately about this idea that like the employer brand matters, right? And so much of how we, we hire great people into our organizations is that they know that once they get in the door, they're going to be well treated by the experience of working there. And in a competitive talent market, if you have a reputation for, for sort of trashing your employees, and like a, a sort of crash and burn approach to your projects internally and everything sort of messy, like people know, people know. And, and even if they don't know and you manage to hire them, they don't stay very long. Lots of fair points here. I'm, you know, this is for the first time I think of recording podcasts because I suffer from ADD. So it's hard for me to stay present and, and facilitate the conversation and listen, you guys are doing a great job of making me think in real time. Um, so I don't know what that means, but I think that uh, that's a good thing for me. And I do appreciate that. So because um, you guys said a lot of good things there. You know, I was about to I was actually about to pause you there, Jonathan, when you were getting into the VC <laughs> rant, because my opinion of that world is um, uh, 18 year old West Virginia running back, Baltimore, Maryland, West Baltimore anger is about to come out <laughs> because uh, my opinion of all of that stuff is. Um, not a positive one, but um, because everything you said was totally right. It's like this, this, this weird perspective that they all had that's more of a ego behooving of them type moment that they all play. So um, this is interesting. So let me, let me just, ask you guys. Let me please, just make no, a we, local shout out. You've, you've got VCs who, who aren't that way. You've got Matt Conwell in Baltimore who's okay. like playing a different game. So it's, it's not all Let's, of them, but I totally agree there is like – there is an industry slant there. What, what's his name again? Matt Conwell. He's uh, he's based in Baltimore. I, I follow him on Twitter. I've never met him, but um, but there's a bunch like Arlen Hamilton's doing interesting stuff, right? Smaller checks to more companies. Yeah. Not all yep. of them trying to explode. Like there's people in DVC. I was I was sad to see it shut down, 
Um, but like they were doing some interesting stuff too. So like, there's hope, but, but like, I'm, I'm right there with your running back anger. <laughs> like it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mess to clean up in that industry. Yeah. I just want to put my head in their solar plex and run them over. But um, that's another conversation. Um, all right. So let me ask you guys this now. This is something that I'm working on right now actively. So I, I, I need your point of view on this. And I'm sure you guys have done this before. When you guys are helping organizations guide, train, um, upskill leaders from the managerial perspective, um, what data are you requesting from the employees? Or follow with me here. Um, you guys know my whole kick has always been this E1, B2 thing. I've always been an advocate of putting employees first, not because, not, not even from the emotional, like, I love employees, I care about them, though I do. I'm always about, let's scrape as much data from those that are actually building our products, executing our services, rolling out these initiatives. Let's call it what it is. And I made this statement time and time again, and I've had very intense debates around this. Without the employees that actually run our programs and execute our initiatives, we are nothing. It's a fact. It's not, a, not an opinion. It's a, an objective reality that we all need to live into. And so having said that, something I'm working on right now and something I think a lot of companies may or may not, and I want to give you guys the floor because you're the experts here, the, the, the companies may or may not be doing this is the following. What, what data are you guys pulling? What opinions, what perspectives, what, what guiding points are you pulling from a team of 50 a team of 60, 100, 200, whatever the case is going to be, of the direct reports of the manager that you guys are inevitably training around how they want to see their managers show up better. The needs, the desires, the wants, the, the, the skills they want to see their managers possess. Do you guys pull data from the employees or guide your managers to pull data from the employees to really understand and, 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 and unpack and bake out what the employees inevitably want to see from the managers that are, that are going to be inevitably leading them to make sure that the program that you guys are putting together to train these folks is done in a way that not only behooves the manager in the brand, but also behooves the preferences and the, and the desires of the employee base. What are your thoughts on all that? There are two pieces that come to mind. The first is on what the employer themselves tracks. And, and in any context that we walk into, sometimes it's everything from we do weekly pulse surveys across our entire employee base to what's a pulse survey, we don't do that. Uh, or we do regular sort of culture amp uh, or we do amplitude. Like we'll walk into organizations that have any number of things in place. And for any organization that we work with, it's not a prerequisite that they have that. But if they do have it, it can be really helpful for us in starting a program. And then there's the second piece, which is what we do. Yeah, when we when we talk to them, we get some pretty basic stuff from them, right? We ask things like, you know, have you ever had training before? How many direct reports do you have? We're talking to the bosses now. And then we say, like, what are you hoping to get out of the program? You know, and, and how do you know if it's going to succeed? What do you hope the management team as a whole gets out of the program? And, and how will you know if we've done that or not? And we ask those questions because what we've learned is that every organization is different, that, that like we're, we're interested in the individual data, but we're mostly interested in the patterns. Because what you'll find is if, you, if you're training a group of 20 managers from a 200-person startup and you ask them that question, 16 of them are going to say the same thing. They're going to use the same words, right? And it might be like, my team doesn't have enough urgency. I feel like everybody's sort of phoning it in. Or it might be, how do I deal with an executive that's always stepping on my head and, and telling my team what to do? Like it could be totally different stuff, but but it's really informative for us to see what's the thing that that almost all of them say. 
having said that, we like, I think there's a, there's a bigger thing here, which is, you know, Melissa mentioned some people do employee pulse surveys or ENPS or, or engagement surveys of one kind or another. Those are useful if they're useful, right? And some organizations really thrive on having that data and being able to use it to make micro adjustments. We always talk about this when, when we're talking to a CEO and they say, well, how will I know if your training's any good? We always talk about the Kirkpatrick model. I won't go into too many of the details, but it's like, it's a four, it's four questions, right? So the first question is, did your people enjoy the training? And the answer is almost always yes. Like, did they like the croissants? Like, did they like going off, like off campus or to another place for an entire day and just getting to spend time learning stuff? Like most humans enjoy that. And so that the likelihood of the answer being yes is really high. And it's a suspicious, it's always a, a, a bit of a flag for me if somebody's out there talking about how high their NPS score is for their training. Like we're very proud of ours too. We, we measure it, but, um, but if that's as far as you can push, that's, that's level one. Right. And most people enjoy learning stuff. So that's that that should be an easy bar to clear. The second question is, did they learn skills? Right. Did they just go and have fun for the day or did they actually learn things? And that's pretty easy to assess, too. Like, can you, you know, can you describe how a well-run one-on-one should work? Can you talk about, like, compensation systems? How confident did you feel in walking into complex conversations with staff before training? How how confident did you feel after training? Yeah, but those two, right? Did you have a good time? Like, did you enjoy it? And did you learn stuff? That's the, those are the table stakes. Where it gets really interesting is level three and level four. Level three is, did you go back and apply those things at work? Right. It's, it's one thing to like learn it. And this is where a lot of stuff falls down. You have people who will go do like, you know, what what is your leadership color scheme or or what is your Myers-Briggs type or whatever. And like, that's interesting. And I learned a bunch of stuff about that model. But like when I went back to work, I had trouble applying it. That's level three. Right. Did I actually go back and apply it? And then the crucial thing here for your question is level four, which is when I applied those things at work, did the business move in the ways we wanted it to? That's that's the hardest thing to fake, right? I can, I can run all kinds of stuff for your team that's going to be engaging and have them have a good time and enjoy the pastries and whatever, right? Um, I can have them come back and tell you that they learned skills, but did they move the business? Because this is the thing, if AJ, if, if, if what we're all saying is true, if, if treating your people with respect and dignity, if creating a place where they can thrive and where they can like bring their whole selves to work, if that's all true, that that creates a better business, then we should see it in the business. We shouldn't need you know, like sort of engagement specific metrics, we should see it because like, we're better at hitting our targets, our customers are happier, we retain our employees, they're getting promoted more, like, we should see that all the metrics for how our business is running are going in the right direction. That's a lot of good points there. That's really, really fascinating. Um, Who should hold the managers accountable? This is another kick that I've been on as well. Should it be my vote, my vote in a very strategic, you know, I believe the head of people should be something that it's not in most growth organizations. I believe HR should have its own world that is very compliance, very payroll, very, you know, compensation, you know, very, you know, very tactical, traditional things that every company needs. It's just like, uh, you know, the, I don't know anything about building a house here, but I'm sure there is some nice big pieces of concrete and wood and all these things that keep this house that I'm living in afloat, right? That's the way I look at that. And then I think the the, the head of people should be very more of a, of a more strategic leader, someone that 
in my personal opinion, is the resident expert in-house when it comes to EQ, when it comes to situational leadership, when it comes to all these things that you guys teach, I'm sure, within the manager programs. Who should hold those managers accountable, right? I believe the head of people, what are your thoughts on that? No, 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 go ahead, AJ. No, I was just going to say, I believe the, the head of people I don't know. I'm crazy. Call me crazy. You guys know I'm a little bit, all, you know, I'm crazy, right? I'm a little bit of a hybrid, but I think that, I, I don't know. I, I frankly think managers and executives outside of the CEO, when it comes to, when it comes to the people side of being a manager, the people side of being a leader, not the black and white tactical executions of knowing the competence of your, of your role, like not being a great CMO because you understand a lot about what's happening with TikTok and what's happening with, with influencer marketing and what's happening with, with um, great copy and all these other, you know, not the tactical things, but when it comes to the human being parts of being a manager, I don't know. I believe that they should be reporting directly to the head of people and the head of people should be judging and assessing and making the determination of whether they should stay within the organization or if they're doing a great job or if they need development. Um, am I crazy or what are your thoughts on that? There's like who should and who does, um, and those are different things. I'd say in in more organizations, I would say there's a there's a modern trend emerging where many of the folks pushing for management training within their organization are pushing from the bottom up. We will hear about employees pushing and saying the managers in this organization need training, and I think yeah. 10 and 20 years ago, you never would have seen that. Um, we're also hearing that managers are putting their own hands up and saying, yes, I'm going to get promoted into a management role, but I am not like I'm predicating my acceptance of that promotion on me getting the training that I need to be successful in that role. And again, 10, 20 years ago, I don't think we saw that. So that is a trend that, that's sort of emerging within organizations. And then I think that the other piece is that you fundamentally in organizations, your relationship to the organization is mediated by your own boss. And so if the answer is like, who's managing the managers, their own bosses are responsible for making sure that they get the feedback that they need, that if they're managing in a way that is inhumane or sort of antithetical to what the organization is there to do or how they do it in terms of their values, that they get that, that sort of message from their own boss. It's one thing to have HR show up and say that's out of step with the organization or have a chief people person come and say that's out of step with the organization, but ultimately, holding the the sort of manager accountable and responsible for their impact on the organization that falls to their own boss yeah it's really hard to build any structure of accountability that doesn't exactly match with my mental model of who holds power in the organization that that fundamentally like there's a thing that humans are really really good at and it's figuring out hierarchy whether we like it or not, whether it's the way we want our organization to feel or not, maybe we, we walk around telling everybody we're really flat, we don't believe in a lot of management, you know, just do the work. That, whatever it is, we, we see it, we can smell it, that some people in this organization have power and other people don't. And the clearer that is, the clearer accountability becomes. Because like, if the only person with, with the ability to fire someone is the CEO, then that's where accountability lies, right? And if you say, oh, my chief people officer is accountable for the caliber of management that we put out, and if the management is crappy, it's on the chief people officer to go fix that, maybe so. And 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 I think it's totally fair to say we've got a program around improving our management scores and, and the CPO is the one who owns that. That's totally a reasonable thing to say. But me as an individual manager, if I feel like power resides with my VP that I report to, and there's this CPO who runs a bunch of programs and I, I 
care about some of them and I don't care about other ones, but my VP is the one who can fire me or promote me, then that's where accountability is. And, and you can you can give me all hands meetings every week that tell me something different, but I'm going to pay attention to like who's signing my paycheck, who I got to impress to get promoted. And that person should own it. Like if the VPs like pointing over to the chief people officer and saying, well, why didn't you yell at this manager? Because like, you're in charge of them. Like that's that buck passing can be really dangerous yeah. if you if you let it run too far. Yeah, which is not to say that somebody doesn't own the entirety of the employee experience within the organization and the, the normalizing of that experience. I think that absolutely falls within the, the chief people officer's sort of purview. But to say that, that you're setting up a structure where the chief people officer has to attend every meeting and oversee every conversation is not going to be successful for that that people person. And it's not going to be successful for the organization because literally like you can't have tendrils that go that far. And you know... There are situations where once you lay it bare and you say, okay, who has power in this organization and, and therefore where's accountability, you find cases where there are people who have no accountability, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, you can say, oh, a CEO is accountable to their board and that's true, but, you know, we're recording this in early May and a couple of weeks ago, Basecamp exploded because the founders decided to make some cultural changes there and announce it publicly and, and did a bad job of it. Like the details of it are one thing, but also there was no accountability baked into that structure because the founders didn't have a board. I mean, they just, they, they own the company. It's privately held. They didn't take outside investment other than Jeff Bezos. And so like yeah. there was no one to hold them accountable. And what happens in that case is that if there's nobody who has power over the founders, then the employees do. And Melissa said it, that like the pressure comes from the bottom up. And what ended up happening is a third of their organization quit in a week. And like, that's accountability. Right. But I, I think as, as an organization, you want to you want to think really hard about whether that's the kind of accountability you want, because that's a hard thing to recover from. AJ, we love talking to you and I, I would obviously keep going. I think Jonathan would, too, but I just want to be mindful of time. No, no, no. Thank you for that. I'm looking at the time myself, because you guys know I was probably about to ask another question. Um, let me ask you guys this then. Um, knowing my background, what I started doing over the last 150 episodes or so, I've started baking in just some pure startup entrepreneurial content at a solo level and then bringing on investors and founders and other folks in this series that I have. It's called Let's Talk Startups. Um, I want to ask you guys as a final question, um, do all of the promotion you want. I don't uh, I don't have a preference around it, but I want to kind of get a little bit a little bit tactical here. When you guys think about your business. What is next from a from a from a strategic point of view? You guys have been doing a lot of the work that you're doing here for for a bit of time now. What are you guys trying to tweak? What are you guys trying to change? What are you guys? Where are you guys trying to develop? What's next? And then give any plugs that you would like, and then we'll close things out. It's an interesting one. So we we have not taken outside investment, right? We don't have VCs telling us we got a triple every year, and so what we've done since 2017, we're four years in now, starting our fifth year, is run a, a really good professional services business. And, and what COVID forced us to do was a thing we never thought we'd do. We were, before COVID, we were 100% in person. Like two weeks before the yeah. lockdowns hit, we had 130 bosses in a room doing work together and like watching all the time to be like, oh, is it gonna, is it gonna come to North America? Cause at that point it still hadn't really. And, but like, we never thought we'd do video and COVID forced us to, to develop online programs and they're great and we love them. And, and like, that's been a huge pivot, but it, 
but it is true that we're we're looking at the numbers now and we're like what's it going to feel like to go back to in person because i don't think it's going backwards i think it's it's probably building new things but I think like one of the things that's been really interesting in moving everything online and sort of being forced to move everything online is that our like the, the bosses that we've worked with have gotten significantly more global. And the organizations that we're working with, I think that they, that obviously sort of COVID forced everybody to reevaluate. If you can't hire people to be in the office, you can hire people wherever they are. And so we happen to be sort of well well positioned to catch teams that were starting to diversify their geographic hiring, right? So folks uh, I'd say at the beginning of pandemic, we'd work with thousands of leaders across three continents. Like I can tell you now we've worked with thousands of leaders across four continents and that change has been cool. It's been really neat for us to see people sort of joining programs with us from all over the world. Um, and so the, the sort of significant change for us in the past year has just been watching things get a lot more global. Yeah, it's it's nice to own your own business in part because you get to decide which things you're doing because they're, they're profitable and, you know, bring in a lot of revenue and which things you're doing for other reasons. And you get to decide that those reasons are just as important. So one of the things that we're looking at is once it's safe to travel, can we bring in-person events to more parts of the world? And, and I'll be honest, like the, the numbers on it are not as good. Like the best margin product that raw signal group has ever developed is something that we can deliver online and sleep in our own beds. Yeah. But in terms of like reach, it's cool that we get to like look forward to 2022 and say like let's go let's go work with more bosses in more parts of the world. Yep, and that's a cool experience as well. Like you can't you can't you can't deny that, right? Like, and it's cool if you guys were to fly over to to Europe or or fly to Africa or fly to um, I don't know any any place else. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but <laughs> it'd be cool for you guys or or for that matter, just and, and I'm sure you guys have probably already done this. Um, to, to fly in other parts of, uh, you know, the United States as well and just kind of hold things in person from that atmosphere. So um, I'm excited for you guys. Uh, um, I appreciate you guys. Um, I, you know, with some things that I have coming up here, actually, I'll just drop this little bit of a cliffhanger here and then I'll, I'll, I'll get some time from you guys uh, at a later date. Um, remember that thing I was trying to talk to you guys about regarding Startup PX? Yes, sir. Um, I got some exciting news about that, that maybe I can, I think I, I don't know, even I've gone public with this. Um, we're about 90% of the way there to go through like a, um, like an acquisition merger type thing with a Whoa. very traditional, yeah, with a very traditional HR firm out of Florida that wants to get more progressive and wants to start to bake in a lot of employee experience type of initiatives. And so, um, myself and then my team of, of eight folks, um, we're going to kind of go underneath of their banner and, and do a lot of things. And so that fixes a lot of the issues that we were having just from a breaking into the market type perspective. And so that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, that is, that is huge. Thank you so much. Cause I was, uh, I was having some difficult times with that brand, frankly, for the first time in my career, having that much of a difficult time. So, um, I'm excited about it. I'll ping you guys ear about that later. Um, but is there anything you guys want to say again as far as plugging anything, new trainings, new programs, content online, any other content you're rolling out? Where can people find you? And then we'll close out. Yeah, if this connected for folks, uh, we write a biweekly free newsletter on management and leadership topics. So we sometimes go a little bit astray from management and leadership stuff and just do a little bit sort of 
general pop culture. Um, every two weeks, we're at worldsbestnewsletter.com. Worldsbestnewsletter.com. How is that for a domain name? It's pretty... I love that. I was, I was pretty happy when, when we found out that one was available. Um, yeah, we, you know, every couple of weeks, when we're not going to charge you for it. We're not setting it up to be like a, a subscription thing. It's just us riffing like this on, on like topics that, that either bosses are asking us about or things that we see out in the culture that that we feel like need a management perspective. And it's got some startup layer because we come from startup and we come from tech, but it's not tech specific. Very cool. Well, for all the listeners, uh, enjoy all the content that they both put out. They're amazing. Hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. We went into a lot of different rabbit holes. Um, I still have all the topics. So there will be a part three in the next six to eight months if they are so uh, generous with their time. Um, I appreciate you guys. And then we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thank you, AJ. AJ. Thanks a lot.